0: Three, two, one. We have ignition, and we have liftoff.
1: We have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before. Reports coming back indicate those twin large solid motors are functioning perfectly, producing
0: 1.2 million pounds of thrust each. 25 seconds into the launch all continuing to go well
1: 1997 one of humanity's high notes one of our biggest dreams where we dared really really big and it's still in operation today voyager 1 and 2 still in operation today they're amazing machines and we wanted to take a special moment to reflect on the resilience of the Voyagers. And Wes is here with me. Hello, Wes. Hello. And to help make it extra special, for those of you who remember, one of my favorite shows of all time, SciBite, Heather, a.k.a. Mars Base, is joining us. Hello, Heather.
2: Hello, happy science.
1: Happy science. This is something that I I immediately thought we got to bring Heather in because this is something you and I love to talk about in SciBite. And Wes, you noted that there was a bit of news recently that kind of put this on our radar, and we thought, let's start there, what, what, why we're talking about this now, and then let's get into the Voyagers. Yeah,
3: if 1977 was quite a year, 2020 hasn't started out so well for the world or for Voyager 2. You see, back in January, a problem occurred when Voyager 2 missed a spin maneuver it was using to calibrate its magnetic field instrument, and that glitch left two power-hungry systems on simultaneously. And as far out as Voyager 2 is there's not a lot of power to go around. So luckily the software recognized the problem, but that meant it went to a pre-programmed fault mode, and it took a long time to get back online. Don't worry, Voyager 2's fine, It's, it's still out there doing great science, but it really made me think, these machines have been alone in space for
1: 42 years
3: that takes incredible engineering. We should probably explore
1: that more. Yeah, that's a great point. So systems that were designed before 1977, because they were launched in 1977, have enough smarts to have a fail mode from what you just said and then report back home. That's, that's the kind of engineering that I think NASA is really, really kind of maybe uh, held to a certain like, high standard for. It's like that's NASA design engineering. And Heather, there's been remarkable science that these machines have produced.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, you get all sorts of data. I mean, as the years go on, we're edging towards the end of their power supply. We're getting information on the edge of the solar system, interstellar space now. They are the only instruments we have out there. So the instruments built long before some of your listeners were even born are giving us scientific data that we have no other source of.
1: Right. And they're chugging along now. Um, but it is getting towards the end of their life. So it's kind of nice to reflect on them while they're still working. Because I'm sure there will be lots of eulogies written when we declare them as, as like, dead. And we've lost contact. I'm sure there'll be all kinds of stuff. But it's kind of nice to talk about them now. And Cybite, if, if you want to go back in the uh, archives, episode 22, 32, 51, 102, and, of course, 136, talked about the Voyager probes. We loved them.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, every once in a while they'd come up with, you know, hey, are they you know edging towards this? Oh, my gosh, they picked up. They picked up a chrome mass ejection from the sun once it got way out there, and that gives us data and sort of just chuck along. And every once in a while, some giant piece of scientific information comes from them.
1: Will you will you start us off with some of the the interesting bits about sort of the special moment that the solar system was in back when these launched?
2: Sure. I mean, when we were when it first started, they had the idea of just doing just a Jupiter Saturn flyby, and up until like six months before they launched. They weren't even called the Voyagers because that's all they were going to do is Jupiter-Saturn. Wow. But every, like, 176 years, there is a planetary alignment such that all of these planets were in line. And they said, you know what? With just a little bit of extra tweaking, we can get Uranus and Neptune, too.
1: With that slingshot acceleration, right? The planetary grand tour. <laughs> And it's 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 such an opportunity. I mean, that alignment happens every 176 years. I
3: heard a story where the director of NASA at the time went to President Nixon and basically said, look, the last time this happened, Jefferson was in your seat and he totally botched it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talk about being brought a very limited opportunity to create history. And wow, six months before they launched, Heather. That's that seems like that doesn't happen.
2: The overall plans were not necessarily changed at that point, but they're Name was changed at that point because then, by that point, they had said, "Oh, well, we can get all this extra data and go by these ex- other planets." And Wes, you mentioned earlier the the fault protection that that went into effect when they had the the problem earlier this year. The Voyagers were the first first spacecraft that had that programming built into them. That's become standard now, where if it completely like loses its mind for a minute, it can it knows to Go to a low low power mode you know and then wait to hear back from home essentially
1: the engineering that just had to think about these kinds of situations so there's there must so there must be redundancy in systems and some modularity in how systems are used and what gets turned on and turned off and those are bits and pieces that i've I've heard over the years do we know roughly like how much life these things have left
2: roughly five years or so um, as I mean these were They're not solar power because way out there, there's not a lot of solar power. So they did um, radioisotopes. So that has a half-life. There is going to be a point where you can't keep it warm enough that the whole thing doesn't freeze. So slowly over the years, they said, okay, we don't need the cameras anymore. We are way too far out. We can't get cameras. Shut that down. We don't need to keep them on. We don't need to keep that part of the spacecraft warm. And just slowly but surely dialing back which instruments to keep on, which instruments to stay warm so that they can eke as much out of it as they can. You don't have to have thrusters or anything, because in space...
1: You just keep moving.
2: Yeah, physics says, unless something stops it, it's just going to go forever.
1: Right. If something stopped it, that in itself would be quite the discovery. (laughs) Yes, very true. I kind of hope, in a way, even once it's powered off, and it can no longer keep its components warm, because that's really that's one of the major power uses is the the camera only gets turned on from time to time or these things get turned on and off but it has to keep components from completely freezing out there and that is a significant constant use of power so eventually like heather says that will run out but in a way though it will continue as a monument of humanity
2: oh yeah and the data we have isn't going anywhere when they saw one of the coronal mass ejections and they said oh you know this is we can sort of translate this to sound and Hey, we see this two big things coming here and they follow a slope. Let's keep following the slope back. Oh, wait, there was a smaller something that happened along that line four years ago that we just didn't take note of. So we can continue to pull data out of this for pretty much as long as we come up with ideas of, is that noise or is that something?
1: That's great. So there's there's discoveries that can happen even years later. We just keep learning. Um, But there's also the aspect that on this is there's this famous golden record that contains different aspects of our cultures and humanity. And The Verge did a decoding of the record. And I have a little sample of what they discovered.
3: Greetings in 55 languages. Samples of music from around the world. Sounds of Earth, such as oceans, birds, thunder, and whales. And on the other side, this. It's that sound that contains all of the image data for the photos and drawings contained on the Golden Record. And using the process described in the last few symbols on the cover, we can render the images.
1: It's almost kind of like a modem. Like it's, you know, sort of that same kind of idea. And what's incredible about this Golden Record, and I encourage people to look at pictures online of this, is they printed a decoding guide on there and there was there was just incredible thought put into trying to create a language that is based on universal properties of space
3: well what a challenge you don't have much to work with when you're might be speaking to a totally unknown alien civilization
1: right i mean there's a diagram where they use uh, a wavelength between two hydrogen atoms or whatever the term would be what would be the term there hydrogen molecules
2: yeah it's there that diagram is like Occasionally, those, uh, the spin of those molecules flip, and so they're trying to describe that moment. It's like when it flips, this specific moment this is the simplest atom we can think of. There's this distance and this spin and this speed going on. So they're like, let's, let's try to talk about this in atoms and molecules, so that somebody that we don't know, that we obviously don't speak their language to, with the best shot of possible of trying to explain to them how to play a record player.
3: Right. I mean, you'd think if you managed to get out in space or somehow come in contact with this record, that civilization would have probably started investigating the basic physics of, you
1: know, hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Right. They'd have to, you would think. So it's a safe assumption to make. And it's such a brilliant starting space. So then from there you get basic measurements. And from there you can deduce how to decode the imagery that is embedded in those sounds.
2: Yeah. And that's like on the cover. So it's like the first thing seen is, you know, very basic instructions on how to play this one side has all the sounds and the other side has all the image modem sounds. So it's like how to take that from modem sounds to actual images and try to make sense of that. And then also a diagram of sort of where Earth is and compared to specific type of neutron stars because they have a very specific wavelength that you can identify. So it's like, here's where this came from. Here's our return postage uh, information. And here's how to read our magical disk.
1: Isn't that incredible? And and here's if you're getting it right, you should see this. And if you see this, keep just using this methodology to decode the rest. And it's true genius. And when I think about true genius, I, I do think about how Carl Sagan was involved with the project. Here's a little bit of Carl introducing the golden record.
0: Voyager's passage by Jupiter accelerated it towards a close encounter with the planet Saturn. Saturn's gravity will propel it on to Uranus. And in this game of cosmic billiards after Uranus, it will plunge on past Neptune, leaving the solar system and becoming an interstellar spacecraft destined to wander forever the great ocean between the stars. And if Voyager should sometime in its distant future encounter beings from some other civilization in space, it bears a message, a record, golden, Look at, with instructions for use. And on this record are a sampling of pictures, sounds, greetings, and an hour and a half of exquisite music. The Earth's greatest hits. <laughs> you know what's also amazing about that? The, the Golden Record isn't
3: adding anything of scientific value. It's not helping record measurements. This is, in some ways, the first of our species really taking seriously the idea there might be someone else out there, at least enough to allocate the weight of the record and in in, on the spacecraft. And that's
1: why I said in my introduction, like it's really us dreaming as big as it can get.
2: Yeah, I mean that that idea of the, of that in itself rode over to some of the instrumentation where NASA sort of told everyone, you know, this will last for four years, designed for that, and some groups went, yeah, sure, four years, week, <laughs> and just put as much into strengthening this as possible and giving it the best shot it had at going as long as it might.
3: Thank goodness they did too. And what an exercise in what if, especially when you're, you know, you're exploring unnew territory. How how do you plan for that strong magnetic fields and whatever might be outside the solar system?
2: The fact that it had to go through Jupiter and Saturn there were really strong radio fields magnetic fields so they had to really strengthen it was the first time they sort of strengthened a, all the electronics, and the computers enough to handle that going into space. So that gave it a better shot at surviving long-term, too.
1: So, Heather, from your understanding, what is Carl Sagan's real involvement with the project? Because I know he was a consultant since the 1950s. Was he very involved?
2: Yeah, some people know him as being involved with the pale blue dot picture, but he'd been involved with NASA for a really long time. He'd briefed Apollo astronauts before their flights to the moon. He helped design numerous spacecraft missions to Venus and to Mars and the Voyagers. And when he became a member of the imaging team, I mean, years after it launched, it's been in space for years, that's when he came up with the idea of use the cameras, point back to Earth, take a picture. They knew it would be an incredibly small pixel out of this giant picture that they were taking. That was the point of it, to say, Look back, here are all the planets spread out that we can take a picture of, and Earth is two-thirds of a pixel. We are tiny.
1: Yeah, that really puts it in perspective. It's, it's humbling, actually. And I think Carl did a, a really good job of, of bringing that point home. You know, he was such an eloquent speaker, so he was such a great advocate for this project. Um, I'll just give you a little sample. I love, I love hearing from Carl.
0: That's here. That's home. Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there.
1: Really puts it in perspective, doesn't it?
2: Oh, yeah. The picture of Earth was the last image Taken by Voyager 1. Just a little over half an hour after it took the picture of Earth, power to the cameras got shut down, never turned on again. It took them two and a half months to send those pictures back. (laughs) But, I mean, that was the last picture. They said, all right, this is the last idea. We want to try to take a picture of Earth. We'll see what happens. So they didn't know whether it would actually take. They just aimed, took the picture, hoped they would find something, figured they would be able to see a little something, and then... Two and a half months later, they were able to say, now we've got it all together. Now we have the famous pale blue dot picture. Could
1: you imagine the anticipation of that? Oh, yeah. Saying they're waiting for that. (laughs) I just I can only imagine because of the transmission rate. There's so much they couldn't do with this machine. Well, and the and the whole
3: the whole mission was was
1: like that, you know, because there's long times in between visiting planets.
3: So you just have weeks of nothing, and then
1: suddenly <laughs> you're
3: receiving data 24 seven. I right. mean, there's stories of people just sleeping in their cars, not sleeping at all, because you don't want to miss a second of this.
1: The job goes from zero to a hundred.
2: Oh yeah, that's how these a lot of these space you know outer planet spacecraft work. It's ten years of waiting. With the occasional uh, call-in, still going good? Okay, good. Thumbs up.
1: All right, keep <laughs> on going.
2: A few months of complete craziness. I hope you caught up on your sleep because you probably don't want to for about two and a half months.
1: So you kind of piqued my interest with the transmission speed. What do we know about the, the tech in the Voyager probes?
2: They have about just a little under 70 kilobytes of memory total and complete.
1: Wow. wow. Ouch.
2: They work on eight tracks. <laughs>
1: I can't believe they've held up this long. I know my
2: families didn't. (laughs) They were designed so that they wouldn't wear out until the tape had moved back and forth the equivalent of the width of the United States. So that's like a two-hour VHS playing once a day for 33 years without failure.
1: So these are rather expensive eight-track tapes, I'm guessing. (laughs)
2: Well, now that they've been in space, extra expensive, but...
1: No kidding. Could you imagine somebody coming along and just taking those eight tracks? (laughs) No. For the Galactic Museum. You know, in the future when humanities reach out into space and it's just a bunch of jerks. (laughs) It'd be a nice trophy.
2: But you mentioned the, the speed as well. It's only, we're getting the data about 160 bits per second.
1: Okay. Yeah, I can see why that would take a few days to transfer an image.
2: Yes.
3: You know, honestly, even that fast seems impressive for how far away it is.
1: And again, 1977. We didn't even have internet, so can't make a dial-up joke. There wasn't dial-up.
2: That is the first internet Voyager calling home. (laughs) Completely wireless dial-up.
1: Yeah, there's your wireless internet for sure. Wow, 160 bits per second. So they must have to be really, really, really lean with the software. Uh, Are they still sending software code up to this thing?
2: They did at one point. It was originally in Fortran 5, and then they were able to send an upgrade to get it up to Fortran 77.
1: Could you imagine the, the nerves upgrading a spacecraft that is out by Pluto? Or they even
3: had fast? to upgrade Voyager 2 right after launch to fix some, some customization. Wow.
2: But it's true. Voyager 2 launched first, and it's on in the in the rocket. So as it was launching... It was freaking out. It's like, wait a minute, why am I shaking? Why don't I have any control? What's going on? And it started freaking out. And it took them a little while before one of the programmers was able to find just the right bit of code to reach out and be like, okay, pause, calm down. Let us tell you what's happening. And then they had to upgrade Voyager 1, which launched second. So they they upgraded that software really quick so it didn't freak out because it would have done the same thing. It would have freaked out.
3: Sure. I mean, can you imagine these days when you just, you know, you mess up your web app and you just hit deploy on GitHub and a new release rolls out, it's pretty different
1: than patching a spacecraft. Especially at those speeds. That's incredible that they've been able to do that remotely. I mean, I just, again, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by the, the resiliency of these systems, the backups that, that and, and also the support team that must have remained on the ground. There must have been people that, are, that, are, have, that have to be trained up in this stuff now.
2: Yes, and actually, Voyager lasted so much longer than originally anticipated. NASA changed the way they put together teams for these spacecraft. When uh, the New Horizons spacecraft went to Pluto, they specifically chose a certain percentage of the team to be as young as they could because they realized these things last for a while. In one, two, three decades, you might need to ask somebody on the team what happened. And if all you have is senior engineers that are all going to be retired or not around in three decades, there's nobody to ask questions of. So they specific for these longer missions. They specifically make sure they spread out the age range. So they can, as they bring on new people, you still have you know, some of the original team members that knew, oh, yeah, I remember them talking about X, Y, or Z.
3: That's exactly the next level of planning. that is just so
1: impressive about this whole program. It really is. I mean, could you imagine working on a project where that's a consideration? This project must have been really a mind bender for those working on it because they're they're designing something that's going to go possibly far beyond our solar system. It's taking a message written in a universal language to potentially another society. And that's just their day to day job. They're just building this thing and sending it out there. And trying to figure out generational project teams and things like that. It's just an incredible, it's an incredible set of work. And I'm just so grateful that it happened because now I look at it and I just find it inspirational. You know, I find, I find the whole thing incredibly inspirational. It's,
3: I mean, it's taught us so much about our solar system and our place in the universe. And what we can accomplish.
1: And Voyager has a number of firsts under its belt.
2: I mean, I mentioned before they were first to be protected in, in such the way that it was for electrostatic discharge, for radiation. The first time that we actually had a programmable computer-controlled altitude and articulation so it could control itself. It wasn't waiting to ha- hear from us. The fault protection. The way we talk to it, the way we bring radio antennas together here on Earth to be able to listen to it and talk to it. Oh, wow. And as the timeline went on, then we became, they had, became the farthest man-made objects when they hit the, the edge of the, the solar system. We knew it was sort of a bubble where the sun is shooting out a whole bunch more than light. It protects us from the galaxy at large. And so we had these ideas of what it was shaped like, what our little bubble going along the stream of the galaxy is. But as the Voyagers hit, they're going in two different directions, one along the plane of the planets and one going vertical of the plane. And so as they hit those termination bows and went into interstellar space, we were able to know for sure the possible shape of our bubble. It's not a circular bubble. It's kind of more teardropped and, you know, what interstellar space is like.
3: It's our first steps into this new world. Mm -hmm. And it's about to be a little more alone. NASA recently announced that due to some upgrades planned for that giant radio antenna we used to talk to Voyager 2, it's going to be silent for the next 11 months. So we won't know until January 2021
1: if we can still talk to it. Wow. That's a long time. Just alone in the void. Out there on its own because the groundwork has to be done, huh? I guess they must have been putting that off.
2: Yeah, these antennas are, you know, multiple decades, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old. And the actual physical facilities themselves just have to have maintenance. And in order to do that maintenance, you have to take things down.
1: Fair enough. I guess we'll find out in January 2021 how it's doing. Hopefully it's still out there responding to us. Could you imagine the team that's going to be sitting there? Waiting. Edge and of their seats. I'll be, yes. I'll be waiting too. Well, Heather, thank you for joining us and going over. This has been really nice. Thank
2: you for inviting me.
1: Now, what do you say? Could we talk you into joining us on a future special extra?
2: I certainly think that's possible.
1: A very sciencey one? Yes. All right, thank you too, Wes. This is a great idea. I'm yeah. glad we did this. All right, Heather, thank you very much. Happy science to you.
2: Happy science.
1: Happy science. All right, everyone. We'll see you back here soon.